Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayo. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. this roundtable discussion, I'm joined by my sister Kay, and we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion on the second season of Agent Carter. We may also spoil other, you know, Marvel Cinematic-related things. The first season. First season, maybe some of the, the Captain America movies, whatever. Since this is still a period piece set back in the 40s, it means there's kind of less spoilery stuff for most of the cinematic stuff for Marvel. True, though, uh... You did point out, uh, like, Roxxon Corporation, which we had seen in Daredevil Season 2, I believe it was mentioned. Daredevil, first season of Agent Carter. We'd seen it in a couple of the Iron Man movies, just as background things. Mm-hmm. I, I like the way, and they do a little of that over in the DC TV shows, too. The way they have these uh, set pieces, if you will, in the background, and in this case, in Easter the foreground. Eggs, really. But yeah, the, the commonalities yeah. within them to help say, yes, this is all part of one universe. Well, and here they've got the Howard Stark character, father of Tony Stark, Iron Man. And that character, Dominic Cooper, uh, the actor, was in uh, three, four of the ten episodes. Yeah. Fair number. This takes place on the West Coast versus the East Coast, where the first one did. Um, a fair number of cast members uh, are all back. I think they really brought the strongest of the cast over. Um, They brought Sousa, Mm -hmm. who I really liked. We knew the actor from Dollhouse, most notably. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorites of, you know, she may not have been the most used in every episode season one, but she was a highlight when she was on screen each time. Season one was kind of the gatekeeper. To the office. Uh, Rose. Yes. She had a much better role this season and did a terrific job with it. Yeah. Including going on missions and showing just how capable she is. Yeah. As an agent and stuff. And I would be very disappointed if in a a third season, should they do one, if if she doesn't come back. Yeah. Well, and I think they had a great scene for her. Where she was actually in the background at her reception job, if you will, at the Auerbach Talent Agency, where uh, Peggy and Sousa are outside on the street. And Sousa's saying, I'm not sure about sending her into the field. And as she's dealing with someone there in the reception office in the background, Peggy's saying, have you ever actually thought about what she does down here for you guys day after day? I thought it was a good scene, but it's one of those, if you stop and think about it, it's utterly ridiculous. The to way have Sousa and Peggy Carter out on the street yeah. doing all that stuff. There were several aspects of it that were ridiculous, the way some of the inside scene played out as well. But it was good dialogue to have yeah. Peggy pointing out the, you're taking for granted what she does. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of it is done outside of your sight, and a lot of it is stuff you just don't have to think about that she does. Yeah. Well, and I think the Peggy Carter character here was in a position of having firmly established herself with most of these players versus Mm -hmm. first season still having to do that. 
Well, there was one point where someone who was new this season is kind of left standing with Sousa and Jack Thompson, who Jack is the chief for New York, Sousa's the chief for LA, and Peggy's gone running off with other people, and the newest guy is like, well, what do we do? And the two chiefs both scream out in a stereo, do what Peggy said. Yeah. And I really liked that, especially coming from Jack Thompson, who was the chauvinist of season one. Well, from both of them, because they've often been at odds with Agent Carter because she doesn't always play by the rules. And as as chief, she causes them some problems sometimes. But they also both know she's usually right. And at the end of the day, she's going to save the world or whatever. Well, and they've been at odds with each other. Yeah. Frequently and even leading up to that moment. But in that moment, they realize whatever our differences are, her plan is the right one for this moment. And we need to simply move forward. Well, what I liked about the whole dynamic is by having uh, Daniel Souza move to the, the West Coast office as section chief, it allowed him to get a, a, a good promotion and much better screen time and, and use in the plot. While keeping uh, Jack's character as the section chief in New York, he's over in L.A. most of the time, it seems like. Mm-hmm. But they're now, again, on equal footing, but at a higher level than they were first season for the most part. Yeah. And it just had some fun dynamics um, throughout. I think the choice of using the zero matter or really dark force stuff from from Marvel Comics as kind of the main uh, story motivation or whatever. It worked well, but there was some really ill-defined pseudoscience. I don't even want to say technobabble, but there there was a more sci-fi element. There were a lot of aspects to that that I didn't understand what it did. It reminded me a lot of very early in season one of S.H.I.E.L.D. when we would go out, grab something we didn't understand, drop it off at the vault, and never see it again. Well, and I think in one of the early episodes of S.H.I.E.L.D., when they introduced Graviton, there was the the, the black matter stuff, which is exactly what this is, See, and it may be the origin of it. Yeah, and that's why I kind of wondered, but I was just never clear enough. I'd have to rewatch some of the earlier S.H.I.E.L.D., that particular early mm-hmm. S.H.I.E.L.D. episode to know for sure. It's similar-ish enough to the monolith they had in the beginning of the third half first half of the third season i should say um to be a little confusing there well it's a similar enough concept in several respects that i kept teasing you between episodes of they've opened a portal to another planet oh the trucks that went missing are stuck with Gemma on the other planet again spoiler filled this is getting into first half of third season of agents of shield no it's fine because I mean, when she was sitting there testing with rats, I'm like, well, that's how that planet gets rats. Yes. Um, If you ever wanted to know what watching TV with the two of us is like, if we know the other has seen something, that's the kind of comments we yell at the other. Well, and there are also a few times where I think both of us were calling out the next line of dialogue before it came. Yes. And it's not to say, oh, it's predictable. It's just... It's logical. Well... It's, it's somewhere between logical and predictable. Mm-hmm. Or inevitable. Inevitable. It's one of those things that in certain situations in a TV show, the next line of dialogue is got to be X, mm-hmm. whatever X is. 
Mm-hmm. You know? Um, well, and there are some things that culturally have to follow each other. If I say thank you, you're going to say you're welcome. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there are some exchanges like that. Well, I mean, some of them were like that, but more it was just a matter of the way they set up the characters, the dynamic. There's a certain pattern to dialogue Mm -hmm. that as an experienced viewer of television and stuff, you just get in the rhythm and you can see it coming. Well, and once or twice, um, and it happened with other shows we watched recently, I'm looking at something and I'm like, that's either rubbing me exactly the right way or exactly the wrong way. And I'm wondering, is it just me? And you'll comment on it. And I'm like, thank you. Because it's almost reassuring to know I'm not the only one reacting the way I am. Well, and that's a part of the fun of seeing like a movie in the theater or something like that is the entire crowd kind of reacting more or less in unison. Mm-hmm. With TV show, you don't get as much of that. Yes. And there are times where there's even a yes, this is really good, or a you've got to be kidding me aspect. Mm-hmm. And there were a few times here where I thought there was a little bit, not quite of the you've got to be kidding me, but wait, we why haven't we seen this character for, you know, a few scenes or whatever? Yeah. And, you know, it usually more or less made sense, but it's a 10-episode season. There's a very clear through line and continuous plot line, but it is reasonably episodic Mm -hmm. despite that but unlike say the netflix shows these feel a little bit lighter weight Mm -hmm. now part of that is these are around 42 minutes a piece whereas uh the netflix daredevil and jessica jones stuff tend to be anywhere from 48 to 60 minutes Mm -hmm. so that's almost another act of you know uh, on the screen there uh, kind of a between the commercial breaks if you will section but regardless of that, I felt that there was a bit more of a leisurely pace to this season uh, mm-hmm. compared to, again, a Netflix show. It was very much, I felt, like how the first season of, of uh, Agent Carter was. And it's just a, a different story style, I think, for a serialized weekly on network television versus a dropped all at once plan for marathoning kind of a Netflix show. Well, exactly. I was going to say, you know... The times that you're giving for the Netflix shows don't include a previously on, and yet the times that you're giving for uh, Agent Carter do. But the Netflix stuff also has about a minute or so of um, opening credits. That's true. Whereas this has a title card that's up for a few seconds. And I have to say, one of my favorite slides that appeared on screen, and I guess it was in the final episode, because I have grown to almost despise the episodes that give you that explosive action scene. Start with something incredibly dramatic, oh, and wow. then three days ago. Yes. Or the more, you know, uh, accurate 72 hours ago. Yes, yes. So I absolutely loved the title card that came up with 60 seconds ago. Well, and it was a good recap. Both they'd already done the previously on, so it's like, oh, this is where we left off. But then, again, replaying that last minute mm-hmm. and seeing a, a different perspective on mm-hmm. it was fun. Yeah. And again, knowing that, hey, it's only a minute of this, don't worry about it. Okay, yes. that's fine. Yeah. And it was a completely optional caption to put up there. Because, I mean, we'd seen that same sort of a thing done on other shows, um, notably third season of, of Daredevil, where they'd pick up one episode, second season of Daredevil, where they would pick up one episode, 
really overlapping the last few minutes of the previous one, but from another character's yeah. perspective. So if they had done that here, where it was just boom, let's go, versus the sixty seconds ago, but it, somebody thought that would be a funny thing to do, and they were right. It was it was good. Yeah. And one of the strengths of this show is the dialogue and the interplay between the characters. Definitely. Certainly between Carter and Jarvis at times. Yeah. Almost any time Howard Stark is on screen. Uh, yeah, he gets some awesome lines and some awesome interactions. And just the way they think through his character. Yeah. When he's being told about um, uh, the the Russian agent. Yes. And Dottie Underwood. Dottie Underwood. And, and Jarvis is like, she kidnapped you recently. And, and Stark's still drawing a blank, drawing a blank. And then Jarvis is like, well, you were wearing this. He's like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they did a good job with that. I loved the bit at the end where we see the hover car. Yes. Kind of the precursor to uh, Lola from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, that was very nicely done. Well, and one of the things that I thought this season of Agent Carter did poignantly and beautifully and probably more subtly than a lot of people thought through was establishing a a reason and a relationship between the he doesn't yet exist, Tony Stark and Jarvis. Yeah, they do some good stuff. Uh, with Jarvis's character, what they did this season that I loved, we get to meet his wife. Yeah. I don't recall if she was in the previous season, but she is front and center here. Last season, as I recall, she was only referred to. She was off screen a lot. Um, I think he, we would yeah. hear the phone call with her sort of thing. Mm-hmm but not actually see her. And she was well cast, brilliantly used in kind of a, yep, that's the kind of person that, that would be a good, you know, match for, for Edwin Jarvis. Mm -hmm. um, just the, the introduction scene was really well done, the way she was used, um, and everything from the kind of her final lines on, in the series or the season or whatever, of, you know, let him drive you, I'll never hear the end of it otherwise, kind of a... yeah. The characters of, of the, you know, Edwin and, and Anna Jarvis, they get each other. They're a good match. Yeah. And instead of playing, she's jealous because he's spending time with Peggy, whatever. There's a trust there in a- Not just that, but the line she had in the hospital when he was there at her bedside and he says, well, you're, you're hurt. Of course I'm here. And she says, there are dozens of nurses and doctors and professionals here to take care of me. You're the only person to go out there and take care of Who Peggy. Who else does Peggy have? And I thought that may be one of the most beautiful husband-wife exchanges that they could have given that couple to really explain why she is so supportive of that relationship. Well, the whole uh, Anna getting shot and in the hospital part of it, good mo moment when she gets shot, very dramatic, good, you know, okay- mm -hmm. Get some great scenes when will she make it or not. And then when Jarvis is telling Rose, Rose keep an eye on her mm -hmm. and hands her a bunch of stuff. He hands Rose some paperwork and it's like clearly this is important and Rose looks at it and, and kind of, okay, I get it. Kind of Well, at first Rose is, he's saying, you know, while I'm on this mission, which Rose is thinking, well, it's supposed to take a few hours, right? And he's going, you know, here are all her favorite recipes all her favorite games, her favorite blanket, and she's going, I think I misunderstood. How long are you expecting to be gone for? Yeah, and then the paperwork comes out. 
And we see it later. And the way we see it is Rose is in the hospital room about to play Hangman with Anna because it's one of her favorite games. And she's got the box that, that Jarvis put everything in. The top is open. It's a mirrored on the inside. Mm-hmm. And Anna can see that the paperwork is on top and it's the last will and testament of Edwin Jarvis. Yeah. And kind of, you know, he's not here. He's doing what he needs to do, but he's also got somebody here to look after. Anna yeah. kind of a, just some, some great character moments all the way around. Well, and Anna had a, uh, a meal with a character we'll talk about soon, um, Dr. Wilkes. Mm-hmm. But during that, she was saying that last year when uh, Jarvis would help mm. uh, Peggy, he would tell her little lies so she wouldn't worry. And she missed the lies. Not in a bad way, in a good way. She she liked that he didn't want her to worry and that she was enabled and helped not to worry. She liked knowing the truth of the matter because he's a horrible liar, but she liked, again, like you said, the the peace of mind she had before knowing some of that. Yeah, yeah, and now she was getting this up-close view of how dangerous it was, mm-hmm. and she missed that that layer of sheltering. Yeah, I thought, again, the introduction of her character really raised the level of the show mm-hmm. in many respects. The introduction of uh, Dr. Wilkes uh, as one of the, the main characters for this arc... I thought worked well. He was well cast, did a great job with the role, and he's introduced as just a scientist who's relevant to the the whole zero matter stuff, and and becomes just a pivotal you know yeah. player in the game, um, forming relationships with most of the key players and stuff. Mm-hmm. He's one that, if they were to do a third season, should they bring him back? I don't think they have to, but I certainly think they could, and there's benefit to that. Mm-hmm. Um, he was well cast. I mean, I want to start right there. The actor that they brought in for that role, he took what was on the page and just elevated it with the charisma he brought to the role. Yeah. And the thought. Well, and acting as a love interest for Peggy Carter. Um, I will say one of the scenes that I thought one could argue is just wildly out of place for the season, but also was just really fun to watch was the musical number as she's oh. having a dream sequence. Yeah, at first I'm looking at that and I'm going, okay, clearly a dream sequence. Well, it starts black and white. Yeah. She goes through a couple of different, you know, she's at the the diner at one point, then she's on a stage, they're singing, they're dancing or whatever. But, you know, um, the actor who plays uh, Wilkes did a great job in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actor uh, for Sousa did an amazing job with that. He did. He's one that, again, we've seen on Dollhouse and I think one or two other shows. Mm-hmm. And the f- fact that he's not just a, a bigger name in Hollywood, I don't get. He's very talented. Yeah, I agree. Um, but it was, it was again, one of those, it was an odd way to start an episode, but kind of a memorable way, too. Um, they had some really good special effects this season. They didn't have as many uh, gadgets and gizmos and stuff as they've had in previous seasons. Or yeah. the previous season, I should yeah. say. It's easy to kind of throw shields into the mix. Yeah, it is. And it's a little surprising to me that they're still dealing with the SSR, the Strategic Scientific Reserve, versus, you know, forming up S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-hmm. Now, there was some comments throughout this season about it being a wartime effort, the war's over, so it may get phased out. Mm-hmm. 
So if I were planning what to do for future seasons of, of Agent Carter, mm-hmm. and I think there should be future seasons, um, I would be tempted for the next season to be a phasing out of the SSR as S.H.I.E.L.D. is starting to get formed and kind of them falling, not in the cracks, but they're they're tapped for S.H.I.E.L.D., but S.H.I.E.L.D. hasn't started yet. SSR has been spun down and they've got a mission kind of between mm-hmm. that. Well, there's and spe- then the next season start up Shield. There's speculation there could be a time jump. Absolutely, there's no reason these have to go, you know, year after year after year. I think another uh, interesting approach uh, for kind of a ten episode, once a year show, kind of again the the I don't say the sweeps week, but the hiatus time frame mm-hmm. when they tend to air this would be a history of Shield. Mm-hmm. And if you want to jump every 10 years or whatever, you get the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the you know. Mm-hmm. And just how do some of the players change? How does the technology change? How do the threats change? And it'd be something that you could always go back and just do, okay, here's, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. 1961 versus 62 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, this one had a lot more political machinations this season. There's a lot of kind of who's in charge, who's not. Well, it's funny that you say political machinations, and yet it was not national politics. You know what I mean? It was internal politics. It was more Illuminati kind of politics. Who's the power behind the power? Yeah, exactly. And I I mean Illuminati in the mythical sense, not in the Marvel sense. (laughs) Because right now there is an Illuminati series going on that stars a bunch of villains. And there was a previous Illuminati group that was essentially, you know, Reed Richards, Black Panther, uh, Blank and uh, Namor, uh, a few of the others that were just the the big brains, Tony Stark and stuff of the universe trying to, to chart the course of much like this council. Well, I was going to say, yeah, we had a uh, all men's club start with an A. I'm blanking on the, the name. The action. No, not the act. Uh, the Avery club. The start with an A. I forget. Um, and then the council, I loved it. They'd been trying to get Stark to join the club for a while and he wouldn't join and Jarvis translated that as, you know, it's no women. And, uh, Agent Carter is saying, but I need you to go try and join because we need to plant bugs. And he's still shaking his head with no, and she's like, trust me, you'll have fun. I thought it was great because we'd seen the club before. It's, again, a gentleman's club in the old-fashioned sense. And he comes in. He's doing the tour. It's like, where's my martini? I've asked for it three times kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. What do you mean there's no women? I think I can solve that. Yes. And then he brings in this throng of women. Of course, all the other members are like, hey, women. Well, one of the things I loved is just sort of this random shot when he's complaining about the drink. And uh, they have these two old guys that have fallen asleep with their yeah. newspapers, cut back to them, and one of the guys is sitting straight up with a girl on his lap. And the other guy's still asleep. I know. Yes. Oh, and when uh, the manager, whoever picks up the phone to call security, we have a code pink. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, it, it was very um, Howard Stark-like. Oh, yeah. I loved the line at the end when... Howard's like, well, how do you think, you know, genius people come up with stuff? And Edwin's like, well, using you as an example, it's clearly drinking a lot and cavorting with women. He's like, that's a good guess, but. Yes, yes. Again, there's just some some great dialogue and some fun moments throughout this. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I would like the the writing to be a little bit tighter. I think there's a bit more story they could have packed into these ten episodes, but what they had uh, held up. Mm-hmm. It was a, a a good kind of beginning, middle, and end of a, an overall story with solid progression throughout. There was never a point of, geez, would they just get to that next major plot point or something? Yeah. You know, the status quo kept changing. There was, who can we trust? What's going on with this character? Oh, they've brought this one in. It's, you know, this other one's getting phased out or, you know, mm-hmm. a, a constant um, sense of progression in the story. Well, yeah, they did an interesting, uh, I'm going to call it a yin and yang type thing with Wilkes and Frost. Whitney Frost. Now, in the comics, she's Madame Mask. In here, she is a 40s-era movie star. And she gets the Dark Force, or the Zero Matter is what they're calling it here. But in the comics, I think it's the Dark Force energy. And winds up with kind of a crack vein-like thing of dark matter on her face. Uh, But she has the ability to kind of project the dark matter out, and it, like, devours things. Well, and it's interesting because, well, to me, it was interesting that she and Wilkes were opposites in that respect. She seemed to be able to project it out and do harm with it. Wilkes had no control. He didn't know what he could do with it, but he could pull hers in. Well, when she tried to absorb his, it kind of funneled into him. But what his main power originally was intangibility to an uncontrollable level. Yeah. It took Howard Stark's, you know, techno babble to uh to make him visible, audible, and then later solid. Mm-hmm. And it never made sense to me as to, okay, he, that's what's going on with him, and she's got something that's totally separate in terms of how it works or whatever. Well, and her theory was that the zero matter reacted kind of like perfume. The exact same perfume will smell differently on different people because it reacts with your body chemistry. Okay, I'll take your word for that. So she explained some, it reacts to the individual it encounters. They gave a plausible explanation for her being kind of the super genius, even compared to Howard Stark and other Mm -hmm. people and whatnot. The two characters that kind of came to mind when they were doing this whole dark matter thing because there are a couple of characters in the Marvel Universe that have dark matter-powered powers. Uh, most notably are uh, Cloak and Dagger. Okay. Uh, Cloak um, can create kind of a, a, a portal or whatever that people can go into and teleport or whatever, and, and Dagger has light powers. Hmm. And again, going to the yin-yang mm-hmm. kind of an aspect, that's clearly not what they were doing here. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the Madame Mask in the comics has no such powers and is basically just somebody who is disfigured and wears a mask and has guns. And because she was an actress, there were a lot of times in kind of her dressing room area, you had the theater masks of the the happy the comedy and tragedy. Yeah. So they were trying to at least be uh, make allusions to the Madame Mask aspect uh, and her going completely crazy at the end uh, yeah. to the insane asylum. Um, her husband was a recognizable actor that we had seen in some other stuff. Yeah, mentalist. Mentalist, and a few other things. He's done a ton of, of character actor type stuff. Mm-hmm. But her boyfriend, uh, after uh, later in the show, uh, was recognizable as uh, Vinny from uh, Veronica Mars. Mm-hmm. He did really well here. He did a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, had a, a fairly sizable role. Yeah, he did. 
more, you know, in the later half of the series. Yeah, the first time he showed up, I didn't think we were going to see lots of him moving forward. No, I thought it was just a, a one-off. They needed some muscle, and that's mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, what other uh, characters and stuff did they bring in? Because, again, they covered a, a fair amount of ground in 10 episodes. I was impressed how much they did. Um, in the 10 episodes, we marathoned it through today, and it took just a little over about seven seven and a half hours thereabouts. Mm-hmm. And, you, again, you compare that to a Netflix show that's about 12 hours. Yeah. They've got another three episodes. Each episode's, you know, another 10 minutes longer almost. Yeah. But with Agent Carter is one of those unique experiences in that it's really immersive in the time period. Yes. They do a great job with the period piece aspect. The hair, the costuming, the cars, Mm -hmm. the The settings. Hmm? The phones. The phones. I was noticing you... The payphones, some of which had the separate uh, pickup, just the earpiece. Oh, I hadn't caught that. Um, A lot of them were the more traditional pickup and had the ear and mouthpiece, but some of them had just the earpiece and then speak into the mouthpiece. There was one shot or one scene uh, in one episode where they're uh, at like a crime scene at a house and you start with this long shot of the neighborhood. And I'm like, there's like... 20 vintage cars there. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure the studios have a bunch of those just because they had them back then and kept them around. Mm-hmm. But even so, um, the the time and logistics just to clear out, one, find a city block that could look like it, you know, it's a 40s type thing. Okay, I'll buy that. There are some actual neighborhoods still like that. Yeah. Getting the rights to shoot there. Clearing out all of the non-period stuff. Yes. Cars, everything. Yeah. And replacing it with a bunch of cars and stuff. You know, that that, that takes some work to do. Mm-hmm. And they do a, a really good job making it feel like the time frame. And there are a few times they used a kind of sort of establishing shots with vintage footage. Yes. And I thought that was interesting because we're at the point now where if they wanted to do that digitally – you could get the whole Hollywood land sign and, and the, the, the 40s era, you know, Hollywood thing and still do it full, you know, high res wide screen mm-hmm. versus the more full screen because it's actual vintage footage. Mm-hmm. But what they did worked, uh, the segues into then, okay, now we're in the new material for the show and stuff was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like the period aspect of it, but. Uh, Dr. Wilkes was a, a black man as a scientist in the 40s. And it's like, okay, that, that feels incredibly progressive. On the one hand, definitely. On the other hand, they covered aspects of it. They didn't cover how he found a university that would let him go through the program, get the degree. That was the one part they didn't cover. But they did cover how later he was essentially hired as the token black. Yes, they covered that. Um, they also covered that it was through military service that he got most of his experience mm-hmm. and that he had to work as a janitor to get most of the money yeah. to get his first college degree. So they covered a lot of my stumbling points on that. They gave that. a very plausible backstory. Yeah. I, I was actually kind of happy with the, okay, they dealt with most of, because when you think about it, in the 1930s, for even a white woman from Texas to get a doctorate, 
she had to go to, and I quote, a Yankee state. Yeah. Because she couldn't get a doctorate in Texas. There was really only one scene when they went into a place to get changed for the payphone. And that was hilarious. Where they met somebody who was pretty racist. Oh, yeah. And what amused me about the scene was not just that he was racist and that he was asking her, are you okay with the implied, because a black man be following you. Mm -hmm. They took the script up a notch by giving the, to me, implication that he was even more racist when she said something to the effect of, I'm with him and I'm fine. Yeah. And that upset the guy behind the counter more. It just seemed possibly anachronistic mm-hmm. for, you know, in the, the, the 40s, um, to, for the most part, the script to be so, or the, the characters in the script to be so race unaware. Mm-hmm. It's good. I've got no objection to that. That's really, frankly, how it ought to be. But, I mean, but watch- didn't- feel like an accurate portrayal of the time and place yes now if i had to argue do i want accurate portrayal or do i want what i got i'd rather get what we got yeah but i wondered about the scene at i forget the name of the hotel where he invited her for a drink and dancing the club or whatever that was one where Mm -hmm. it was predominantly a quote-unquote colored club or Mm -hmm. whatever yeah and here's a a white british woman Mm -hmm. stepping into it or whatever and nobody really Bats and I. Yeah, and from what I could tell, she seemed to be about the only white woman in the place, yeah. and nobody even notices when she goes out dancing with him. That was one of the other times that that whole thing, it's like, for the time frame, does this make sense or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's hopefully hard for our listeners to really kind of equate to that or whatever here in, in 2016, where... Yeah, We have not gotten rid of all racial biases or any of that stuff, but I think we're living in a much better time frame. And let's face it, the 40s were, what, uh, 75 years ago now? Well, but yeah, but the 40s were a time frame when a white person who worked as a delivery person at, say, a butcher shop did not deliver to a black neighborhood. Right. Because that was considered wrong or inappropriate. Well, and that was something that the first season of Agent Carter, with her trying to get accepted as an equal, Mm -hmm. was very much part and parcel of the show. Here, there's very little of any of even that aspect. The one thing they did that I would claim as a callback to that in season one was when uh, Chad Michael Murray's character, Jack Thompson, at the very end. Oh, I love that. I, I'm not a scientist, but what can I do to help? And they're all kind of looking like, I don't know. And Agent Carter's like, we well, could take dinner orders. And he started to, to say no, but he's like, I can do that. Yes. And I thought that was, again, progression for the character. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, and it was funny because there was one other scene earlier where they're talking about one of the devices and it's Agent Carter, it's uh, Dr. Wilkes, and I guess the scientist guy. And Sousa. And Sousa's, oh, it's this. And they all kind of look at him like, how did you know? And he's like, scientific strategic reserve. Kind of, I pay a little attention. Yes. Yes. And of course, there's Jarvis, who's kind of the jack of all trades, and diffuses two atomic bombs, uh, helps <laughs> with electrical engineering and a bunch of other stuff, all in the guise of, well, you hang around Tony uh, Howard Stark long enough. But I love his comment after diffusing the bombs. It was nothing like making a souffle. <laughs> yes. 
And that was another scene where there was a little bit of, of ludicrousness of, okay, surely, I mean, the odds of him getting locked in the room with the atomic bombs, I mean, the whole thing was almost played a little for laughs as the, 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 the scientist guy, token scientist of, of the SSR, uh, who's on his first field mission is messing up, you know, getting the locks done, whatever. But Rose, when she's talking him through all of this. Yes. And she's very much kind of stringing him along and, and you know, uh, stroking his ego and whatnot. Oh, you can do this. Think of success. And What was Jarvis's line to Peggy oh, towards the end? When, when Peggy is talking to Dr. Wilkes, Howard Stark, and the same t- other scientist, I've got three of the smartest men in the world here. And Most he's like, radiant geniuses. Radiant genius, something like that. And he's like, I can almost hear their egos growing. Yes. And they're all doing that stand of, yes, I am that smart. Yes. Again, th- those are the moments where the script had some really good stuff. The actors just nailed it. Yeah. Um, and it was really fun. Yeah. You know, they, they've got a sense of taking things seriously enough to mm-hmm. be believable, but also having fun with it and not taking it too seriously. Well, and I think that's why I really enjoyed the Wilkes character from the moment he was introduced, mm-hmm. was because of how he was introduced. That giddy excitement at an experiment gone right, they wanted to share with someone. Well, and it was how to make a better wine or something, which seemed totally ludicrous for him to be doing on the job, but okay. He was having fun at work and trying not to get caught. Fair enough. <laughs> he also, though, had a good sense of charisma and, again, fun with the role. I mean, it's no surprise that by the end of the season, he's got a job working for Stark and their friends. Yes. You know, because given how we met him, they, they're two peas in a pod. Oh, absolutely. And. If if they do another season of this and don't mention Wilkes, I would be disappointed. Yeah. Um, well, and uh, Wilkes is getting brought on board for a project at some land in Malibu. That kind of sounds like the house that Tony uh, is living in now. Yeah. As Iron Man. That makes sense. I would agree with that. Just throwing that out there. Uh, I'm trying to think what other thing it could be, but yeah. I, I like when they have kind of the connective aspects into the universe, and this felt a lot more grounded in the Marvel Universe than sometimes Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or Daredevil or Jessica Jones or mm-hmm. or whatnot. But that's also part of why I would like to see the SSR spun down and S.H.I.E.L.D. starting to spin up. Yeah. And I would do it with a different, go with the original uh, acronym for S.H.I.E.L.D. or whatever from the comics or whatever with a, yeah, we're not so happy, we may change it up, but S.H.I.E.L.D.'s a good acronym, kind of a. Okay. You know, play with that and nobody can remember what it stands for. You know, it's... Yeah. Because it meant something different in the Silver Age than it does now. Got it. Well, I think part of why I really enjoy the Jarvis Stark stuff is the ties to Iron Man and the stuff. I mean, it's obvious that Tony Stark had a bond with Jarvis. Yes, very much so. And... Jarvis had a line, and I forget what prompted it, of, I have no desire to spend eternity as a disembodied voice. Yes. Yeah. Which is exactly what he does, you know, in the movies. The uh, security system being upgraded and having his disembodied That's what voice it was. That's what it was. yelling at intruders. And, of course, he winds up being the AI and all of that. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know if this is the same actor who does the Jarvis voice for the movies. I'd have to look that up. That's an interesting question. Um, I thought it was Paul Bettany who did it in <gasps> the movies. I'm pretty sure it is because he I played think so. Vision. Yeah, I think so. But again, little comments like that that are good just in the moment if you don't get the reference, but are even funnier if you mm-hmm, do. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a again an awareness that the writers have of the material, mm-hmm. and they have some fun with it. Well, and now that we know that Jarvis and his wife can't have kids. Yeah, it puts a whole different spin mm-hmm. on Tony pretty much being raised by them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's clearly a bond, at least between Mr. Jarvis, Edwin, and Howard Stark. You know, we don't see so much of Howard with the wife, though we know from last season that he was clearly protective of her because he helped with the getting the traveling papers and getting her out from under the Nazis. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know? Well, again, Howard, while being a uh, definite playboy, is a good person. Exactly. Yeah. You know, willing to go off, in this case, to Peru to go research something to go save somebody or whatever. He's Yeah. Somebody he's know. just met. Yeah. And Wilkes realizes almost immediately this is one heck of a nice guy. I mean, he let me as a... N- complete stranger stay in his house or whatever. Yeah. yeah a, a complete stranger who can't is intangible. <laughs> I think what they ought to do with Marvel, ABC, etc. is consider doing a bunch of two-hour movies, TV movies. Mm. Imagine, uh, again, kind of like how when we were growing up, there was the, the Disney, you know, mm. Sunday night movie or whatever. Wonderful world of Disney. You know, so they've got a precedent for that, but get it to where on a once a month basis, you've got, well, here's a two hour adventure with Howard Stark. Here's something with some other character or whatever, mm-hmm. um, be it both, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. and, and Agent Carter and other characters they want to kind of do a little bit more with, but don't necessarily have a full season on or even need for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a ton they could do there. And I think they've got enough other properties they could easily do a, a weekly, you know, kind of a thing on that. Mm-hmm. Not all Marvel type stuff, but it'd be. I, I would like to see some TV movies uh, again. A fun two-hour adventure with uh, Jarvis and and Howard Stark could be just a, a blast. Yeah. Um. I hope they do again another season of this. Um. I know they've got uh, a spinoff of Shield coming out. Mm-hmm. So they're getting a little bit more. They're they're staying invested on the TV side. Yeah. Now Haley Outwell has signed on to a pilot for a new show. Yeah, but I think during a hiatus for uh, a show, they could easily fit in the ten episode thing. And that's the advantage to Agent Carter being a ten episode event, if you will, or mini series. And with the characters of Rose, of Sousa, of Jarvis, you know. They've got enough that she's not in every scene. Mm-hmm. They could easily, you know, um, get some other characters in there to kind of make it feel like it's still Agent Carter. Yeah. But deal with her having a little bit more limited uh, filming time. Yeah. It's a very strong cast. Yeah, it is. It's a, a good show. Again, I like how it's set back in time. The period piece aspect of it makes it a certain degree of fun mm-hmm. in and of itself and also insulates it from... N- needing to feel as tied in to the other stuff, which is funny because it's probably more tied in than, again, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and some of that stuff feels to the 
to the movies, and even some of the movies feel a bit disconnected. Yeah. And it's not a problem. The fact it's all a shared universe is all good and stuff. Mm-hmm. Marvel has been doing a series of guidebooks uh, for the, the cinematic universe that are just comic books featuring, you know, here's what happened in a movie as kind of a, a Marvel handbook kind of a deal. Hmm. Interesting. Now, I know they're going to do one on, um, I think, the first season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and such. Hmm. I would imagine at some point they would do it for Agent Carter, probably covering both in a single volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are always fun because they also do, here's what happened. Here's the character from the show. Here's what it was based on in the comics. Nice. And there are a couple of times it's like, you know, I think I should know that name, but can't place it in the, you know, 50, 75 years of, of the the full history of Marvel comics. Yeah. So again, I thought this was a, a, a lot of fun at uh, 10 episodes and a total of about a little over seven hours, seven hours, 50 minutes, whatever. Easy to, to, to marathon in a, I don't say an afternoon because we're well into the evening. Yeah. But on a, a weekend day um, or even just two evenings, you could you could definitely get through it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So anything else? Does that pretty much do it? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and forum for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.